Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Luke, Luke 17. Luke is the third book in the New Testament. Luke 17, 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea so that he should cause no he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you 7 times in the day and turns to you 7 times saying, "I repent," you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Thank you, Laura for reading the scripture for us. You guys must be getting wise um, and have heard that I was preaching today. There's no one in the first three rows. <laughs> little inside joke. Um, if you're wondering why I'm here, uh, just a simple answer would be that we are easing John back in from his sabbatical. We're not giving him another one, so don't, <laughs> don't worry, at least right yet anyway. So. Uh, yeah, so thank you for the opportunity to um, allow John to get uh, his feet under him. Um, we will jump uh, right into our passage this morning. <clears throat> I've entitled this sermon, Living by Faith Under the Reign of Jesus. When it comes to living under the reign of Jesus in his absence... We still also live with the presence of temptation and sin. I find it amazing that this passage this morning is even very appropriate to some of our covenant statement that was spoken this morning, that we were reminded with each other, much of it is lifted out of a passage like this, especially when it comes to the loving one another humbly. Jesus has a message for the new leadership that he is recreating. Jesus has told the parable against the Pharisees. He had just spoken it and how they are sinning against God by breaking his moral law. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he said that the dogs were actually treating the rich man better or Lazarus better than the rich man. 
As John spoke last week, this parable was a rebuke to them, letting them know their eternal destiny if they do not repent from rejecting Jesus. Sometimes the most loving thing that a person can do for someone is to confront their sin and plead with them to repent. That can actually be an incredible act of love. Jesus is showing love to these Pharisees, calling them to repent. He turns to his disciples then in this passage in front of us, and he explains that temptations to sin are still going to come. He is telling them not to be like the Pharisees who only gather with those like-minded people who won't confront their sin. You can see that back that Jared taught in Luke 16, 9, as, as Jesus gave an incredible parable there, um, or proverb, uh, for people who gather with those who are like-minded and they won't confront their sin. By the way, Jesus, in saying this, has no intention for his people to live apart from each other. The second of the greatest commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving someone does not get to be defined by you or me, even when it comes to doing some of the hard things. In light of the tragic torment in hell, waiting for those who do not repent biblically from their sins, sometimes the most loving thing, I say this again, that you can do for someone is to confront the hard issues in life. Jesus also shares with his disciples how sin, when it comes, is to be handled among his people. Let's look at verse 1. We begin to make our way through the passage. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one whom through they come. Jesus begins with the temptations to sin, and he tells his disciples that temptations are guaranteed to happen. He gives this warning for the disciples' benefit to keep in mind that following him and serving in his kingdom now, living under his rule will also involve faithfully serving him through temptations to sin. What incredible, beautiful discipleship Christ is sharing with his disciples that should be included in our discipling others today. When a person becomes a new believer, temptations to sin will still be after you. He tells them being a part of God's kingdom will mean that you will need to prepare yourselves for a kingdom period that has not yet completely eliminated sin's presence in the world. This is theologically so important to understand that the church really gets a hold of what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. What he is saying is that following Jesus has not stopped the presence of sin coming for you to entice you to sin. Christians can still sin. This is huge for people to get a hold of that have completely written the church off because they see sin in the church. They're claiming, I don't want anything to do with it because I see sin there. That is a dangerous place for someone to be in that doesn't want anything to do with God or his assembled people because they, the Christians still deal 
with the presence of temptation and sin. What Jesus is not saying is that when temptation to sin comes, that it's an automatic time, uh, it's an automatic sin time. That does not mean that. He's not telling the disciples that this is free liberty for you to an excuse for sin. He is not saying that because temptations are sure to come that you're automatically defeated even. He is not saying that. He is not saying that there's ever a time that a Christian gets a free license to sin. Sin is not okay and is not to be ignored in God's church and among his children. This is important to understand that there is a difference between temptation and sin. Being tempted is not sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's a separation, a difference between being tempted and sin. Now, some might raise the objection, well, that was Jesus. Well, listen to Paul's letter to the Christians in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul says that comes by God's faithfulness to who he is. I reiterate, being tempted is not sin. He is preparing his disciples for what's to come in his absence. Dear Christians here, you should be prepared in Jesus' absence, for what is desiring to take you down. It is important to note that temptations to sin also never come from God. I want to read um, a passage in James. You're probably very familiar with it. James 1, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial... For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt, be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Jesus speaks first, pronouncing a strong warning that temptations can be caused by others. People are responsible if they cause others to sin. Jesus then starts by focusing first on the person causing someone else to sin. Let's look at verse 2. Here's what Jesus says about him. It would be better for him, this is the one that's causing God's children to sin, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The question we must ask ourselves is, why would Jesus use this kind of horrible visual death in connection to cause someone to sin? First, we can see here the order in which he spoke this statement, meaning that tempting someone in God's eyes is worse 
than this type of death. Jesus is saying that anyone would be better off dead than to cause one of his children to sin against him. Jesus is not by any means promoting suicide. He is teaching them as well as us that tempting one of his children to sin is among the deepest offenses to God that man can do. Satan is the greatest tempter. And Jesus has no intention for his children to align with the enemy. The warning is, is that there is, as he spoke with the Pharisees, a far worse death to come for people. It lasts for eternity than that of this physical death, no matter how tragic one looks at this physical drowning. The millstone around the neck, the person being dragged to the bottom of the sea, completely helpless, is meant for the disciples to grasp the severity of sin in causing anyone to stumble. God holds people accountable for their treatment of others. It is of incredible importance. There is a concern from Christ for the one also doing the tempting. You might think that God is not necessarily concerned with the person he is. Jesus is giving a better option for him rather than the possible torment waiting for the person in hell if he continues to tempt God's children. The warning teaches that a person is on dangerous ground by causing his children to sin. Second, we see that this special care from Christ is for the little ones being tempted. He deeply cares for them. These little ones should be understood as the newly found followers of Jesus who are right in front of him, who are repenting from their sins and believing in him as their Lord. This does not necessarily refer to children or little kids. That passage is coming later when it's specifically referring to them. It can include them. By the way of application, this applies to all of his true followers. The Christian can take comfort in these words from our Savior. Dear Christian, hear these words. Jesus deeply cares that you're tempted. If you're tempted, he deeply cares what happens to you, and he will never forget. Listen to this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 5 through 10. Understand the heartbeat of Jesus when his children suffer and are tempted. Here's what's coming that we can take comfort in, that this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled among all who have believed. His watchful eye, dear Christian, you can take comfort in this, is on the true Christians and what someone does to his children. 
they have done the same thing. And they are doing the same thing to him, according to Matthew 25. In light of the serious consequences of sin and the fact that eternity is on the line, Jesus then commands his children that sin is not to go unchecked among his people. He teaches that Christians are to care for each other's souls. Let's read verses 3 and 4. That's why he says, Then pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus is not saying that he intends for there to be church police waiting around every corner for sin to happen. That's not what he's saying. At the same time, living in close community of believers, temptation is inevitable and it's guaranteed to happen. Jesus instructs in these verses, he sets his this sets his people apart from any other organized group of people in the world. This is so unique to God's church. And this is how he commands his people to deal with sin in this new family that he is creating. Confronting sin is never easy. It should be done with all humility. I do not believe that this means every sin every, that you can possibly see in everyone. If that were the case, we would never get anything else done. It is directed towards sin that are causing God's children to stumble in their obedience in following Christ. I specifically believe that this is first. Luke draws this out when he changes the word to apostles. He's clearly teaching those, the foundation that the apostles are laying and Jesus knowing that these will be his future leaders. But this also has an impact deeply on every one of God's children in his church. It should be noted that sin committed by others in the church is never done in isolation. When you or I sin... It affects the entire community. When we sin against our brothers or sisters, we have now laid before them a potential cause for stumbling. Follow this reasoning. If I sin against you, I've now given you a choice of something that was not there before that was caused by me. When a person sins, things are always transferred to somebody else of the decision that they have to make now. It is caused by us. Every Christian responds daily to all the temptations in life. Jesus is saying to avoid at all cost, even your own life, for you to be the one to cause people to sin. Jesus teaches that sin is not to run out of control in the church, and the proper response is to lovingly and humbly go to the person who has sinned. How sweet it is when the person who's caused the sin in the first place recognizes it first, goes before anything has ever been said and they repent. What a beautiful thing when God brings that to mind and we can go to each other and confess that before each other. I have had people share with me many times 
and I didn't even see that, but they, they understood it, and they've come and said, Mike, I'm sorry for this, and I hope that that will be true in each of our lives. However, notice where Jesus places the responsibility. It's on any other Christians. The responsibility is for all the Christians in the church. If you see your brother sin, that's what Jesus says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. How tragic it is that there are churches with Christians and leadership that let sin run wild in the church, deeply hurting God's people and destroying the great name of our God. Jesus commands that this should not be so in his church. When sin happens in the church, we are not to sit by, idly by. The, church, the purpose of the rebuke is to recognize the sin and to restore the relationship. So what governs a biblical rebuke? Jesus says it right here. It's the equal readiness of unconditional forgiveness. If you do not have ready forgiveness in your heart, then you have no place, no place to rebuke anyone. Jesus is referring to a complete, heartfelt, total forgiveness that is completely ready. The disciples understood this, that this was not just lip service. It's the same kind of forgiveness that which Jesus forgives us. Jesus teaches that if the sinning brother repents, then as Christians we are to extend unconditional forgiveness as many times as offenses happen. Notice Jesus brings this up in one day. In other words, we are to have a limitless supply of total forgiveness ready for our brother and sister. So when it comes to our relationships here at Cross, let's bring this home. Is there anyone here in this church who has been deeply offended, is being caused to stumble, is being truly tripped up in following Jesus, and there's just that person that you know that God has put on your heart that you need to go to? Perhaps there's husbands and wives here that are not rightly related, not rightly restored. Perhaps there are children here that have a problem with your parents. You need to go with, to them. Perhaps there's small groups that something has been said and you're not going to the person that has offended you, that's causing you to stumble. Jesus places the responsibility on the one who sees the sin. Sometimes, listen, church, Sometimes we can sin, and we don't even know it. Sometimes we can sin, and we, we don't even know that we've done something. How will your brother know anything if you don't go and help him? Because the church deals with the eternity of souls, it handles the highest value above everything else on the face of the planet. People's souls matter in the church. Jesus envisions a community of people in his absence laboring alongside each other, moving forward as a body, glorifying him through properly living, loving, and forgiving. We are to handle sin with each other properly by way of calling sin out when needed in each other and having an endless supply of forgiveness ready. When the disciples heard this from Jesus as the future leaders of the church, they realized how difficult this would be. You can almost feel a gulp in their throat when they realize what Jesus is saying. We're no different than the disciples. You might be thinking the same thing. 
as the disciples. I think what the disciples asked was absolutely right in their concern. Let's look at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, <laughs> increase our faith. The disciples heard what Jesus was saying. How difficult this would be when it comes to not only sin in their own life, but also for the caring of others. Jesus told that they, they told Jesus that they were going to need more faith. That is absolutely true. Let's hear his response. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I don't know how you've heard this passage taught in the past, but following the flow of context, I would first say that this is not a faith spoken of here a, that's a special gift bestowed only on certain Christians or leaders that can perform this supernatural, moving these Christians into this elite status of Christianity. This faith that Jesus is speaking about in the context of the future leaders and all Christians loving each other by looking out for one another and forgiving. Jesus does not disagree with the disciples and their request for faith to what he is commanding. It is by faith. He explains to the disciples that supernatural help is definitely going to be needed. When it comes to sin, this kind of strength must come from God, the only one who has the power and the authority to defeat temptations to sin in us. This, by extension, would apply to all people. No one has the ability found within them to stay out of sin apart from divine help. Jesus tells the disciples about a pure, true faith that exists that they will need. Jesus says that this faith is not naturally found in you, and we can see this by the words, if you had. If you had this faith, some translations tra translate it, if you have indicating that they don't. Jesus tells them that they don't even have the tiniest seed of faith for this task. The unbeliever on their way to hell does not possess this powerful working faith. Upon conversion, God given this new God-given faith is part of the gift to the born-again believer. Ephesians 2, 8 says that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. If you're here and you're a true Christian, then you have been gifted this incredible faith that Jesus is describing here to his disciples. This gifted faith is not naturally found in people. 1 Corinthians 2.14 teaches that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This gift of faith is uniquely given only to God's people at salvation. How true Christians, this is the truth that Christians find their victory in temptations. This is also how people today can be exactly like Judas and be present with the works of Jesus happening all around them claiming to be a follower, even belonging to a local church, but have no power in them when it comes to defeating temptations to sin. Which means that they're still lost, regardless of what their mouth says. 
Jesus goes on to compare this new faith to that of a mustard seed. What an incredible comparison. He is referencing this faith size and strength. Of all the seeds, of all the seeds, the mustard seed is the smallest and the most miraculous producing seed. Now think about this with me. The disciples asked for an increase in faith, which they know will be necessary not to give in to temptation to spiritually care for others. Jesus says that this faith compared to the smallest seed, this faith is compared to the smallest seed but with God-sized results. There are many faiths in the world to choose from, but none have a supernatural power bringing a person under the submission and love of Christ. This true faith Jesus is referring to here is a certain kind of seed that he compares it to of all the seeds. We see in the context when it comes to temptation and sin, Jesus brings up something that can be planted. This is so important to salvation. He places inside every true, born-again believer, the pure, tiny seed of himself to be drawn from again and again and again and again. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 1 John 3.9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed has been, abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Drawing from our faith rooted in the planted seed of Christ gives the church her supernatural ability when it comes to the relation between the church and temptations and sin. Jesus has no intentions of his disciples to sit down and watch mulberry trees jump into the ocean. This is not to be taken literally. He is using this imagery as a picture of how the church community will not just get by, but that they will actually thrive together. When we exercise our God-given faith, we can depend on God for those supernatural results. Have you ever considered, dear Christian, that your faith, gifted by God, is currently producing a supernatural work already that is opposite of the world. For a community of redeemed people called the church, thriving together, looking forward to meeting together, being okay to live closely with each other, allowing others to see our sin and to genuinely die to oneself, functioning together, putting the needs of others above our own, not slandering each other, not gossiping about each other, not engaging immorality with each other. We don't make fun of each other. We don't tear each other down. We serve each other. We pray for each other. We have the ability to lovingly call out sin in each other. We have the ability to supernaturally receive a rebuke from each other. We can repent supernaturally. We can unconditionally forgive one another. 
We can submit our lives to each other. We can watch marriages beautifully restored. We can see people delivered from addictions. We can see miraculous healings and the list of supernatural works go on and on and on and on because of that implanted seed of faith and Christ inside of the Christians apart from any other people on the face of the planet. And I would preach all day long, dear brother and sister, that that is that in itself requires a supernatural work of God that is totally different than the world. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. <clears throat> Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus goes on to teach the fruit of faith, this gift causes an internal understanding of a Christian's rightful position before God. Just like the servant doesn't get to pick and choose the parts of service that he wants, neither do his disciples and neither do we. This faith is present when the Christian needs it the most. When the, Jesus describes this servant already putting in a long day's work, what's expected of this servant is to continue. That's where Jesus is saying this supernatural work, the ability for God's children to be able to forgive, to be able to love, to be able to confront, to be able to rebuke, to be able to pray, to be able to ask God's children for help, to be able to continue in engaging in one another's life over and over and over. We get knocked down, but dear children, the Apostle Paul says we get back up and we continue to follow Christ because of what he has done in our lives. Just like the master is not going to tell the servant to slack off in his responsibilities, neither will Jesus ever going to be okay with his disciples turning back even from the slightly slightest of their responsibilities. The Lord will not say that to the disciples and he is not ever going to say that to us. This faith knows that the master's place is ahead of our own needs and our own wants. Just like the servant isn't going to serve in order to hear a thank you, his disciples are to serve also without any recognition at all. Supernatural faith does that. That's not what people do today. People want full recognition. They want to be seen. They want to be puffed up. They want to be acknowledged. You've got to see me. No, I tell you, Jesus' servants will serve without desiring any recognition. How is this possible? How in the world is this kind of faith possible? Read verse 10 again with me. So you also, whoa, that's powerful. Jesus putting this on the disciples. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, 
we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It's hard to read this verse in context and see anything else but that this is what Jesus desires for his church. Can I lovingly tell you, because of what he accomplished, he accomplished every bit of this for us. He accomplished following God's perfect commands for us. So how is it possible to have a heart like that of the servant if you're here wondering? Yeah, I don't really have that. That's really hard for me. I don't want people to see the sin in my life. I don't want them to know about it. I want to be able to live isolated. I want to be able to... Listen, your heart is not any different than what's common in any person. Of course we all want that. But God has a different plan and a purpose for His church. Jesus Christ intends to take His church and set her on a hill so that everyone else can see the beautiful works of God working through His people. That's the model of people that I am creating. You need to come to saving faith in Jesus. The church is called to exalt Christ above any other people on the face of the planet. How is this possible what undergirds, what full truth found in God's word brings a Christian to this point? Jesus says it right here. You're going to also then, above all that I'm teaching you, understand that you are a people that are unworthy to be there to do that serving. How is that possible? Well, here's what Jesus has accomplished. We, as Christians, understand that we were dead in our trespasses, we were bound in our sin. We were enslaved to ourselves, separated from God with no power whatsoever to even faith right, repent right, trust right, reach out to God right, heal ourselves, move ourselves. We were helpless, hopeless, lost, wicked, rebellious, unrighteous, unholy, unworthy people. And God says, I'm going to take this people and I'm going to put all of my love and affection that will last for eternity on them. And that drives the Christian to his knees to realize what God has given us by faith Church, it's from that faith that we draw and we come to people, our brothers and sisters, and we say, you know, this doesn't look right. Would you consider if that's what God would have you to do? Or, or if we get rebuked, if we get talked to, say, thank you, dear brother and sister, for helping and caring for my soul. I see that you love me so much, you don't want me to spend an eternity in hell, and you desire for me to follow Jesus. Thank you so much. I so repent for what you have drawn to my attention. We can do that. Why? Because of faith. My faith isn't what I'm seeing and how I'm seen before somebody else. My faith is resting in the truth and the root and the blood that has forgiven me of my sin. My justification is in Jesus. I can freely live like this now. There's your freedom. You want freedom, dear Christian? Know that you are loved by a God that will never let go ever back down and his blood was perfect due to his resurrection and we can stand with each other and say dear brother and sister help me I'm not done 
I'm not going to get it right. I'm not going to be perfect. But will you be on your knees praying for your brothers and sisters, loving each other enough and caring for them that we will embrace one another and love what Jesus has done for him, us. And we can claim we do all that. And we've only done our duty. We've only done our duty. We don't do it because we're earning any favor from God. It's all earned. Jesus hung on the cross. These disciples didn't have it. They didn't have this kind of faith. They asked for it. They knew it should be there. They knew that's what was going to be required. They didn't have it. (laughs) Imagine Jesus. saying, I'm going to go and pay it for you. I know you don't have it. But I do. And your faith will be placed in me. And I'm going to stand before God and do this for you. When he came out of that grave, and those disciples saw that, I think they got a keen awareness, perhaps finally, of who he was. Scriptures teach us over and over as we come through this. They, They didn't get it. Listen, dear church, we don't sometimes either. But I pray and trust that loving one another humbly can be lifted directly out of this verses. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you say, I don't have that kind of faith. I don't have that implanted seed. I would tell you that's where the supernatural ability comes from. Of course, there are miraculous works that God clearly does. But don't underestimate the miraculous works that are done every day in Christians that sustain them, keep them, have caused them to persevere in Christ. As Jesus hung on the cross, he received the full wrath of God for all unbelief. He paid the penalty. What we are called to do, dear Christian, is to repent. I love it that the nickname for Christians in Romania is repenters. They're repenters. It's those repenting people. You know what? What a beautiful thing to be called when Jesus teaches that this is for us. So I hope if you're here and you do not know Jesus that you will repent of who you are and what you've done, continuing to try to follow in your own steps and that you will give and surrender your life to Jesus the one who paid the penalty for sins. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this beautiful passage lifted out of Luke. God, you spoke to my heart first as I understood this passage. I pray that, Lord, your word that has been taught will have an impact on this church. I pray that you will change us. Use this word your word, and draw people to yourself. We thank you for the supernatural work of salvation, the beautiful gift that you've given to each person that is here that has repented and trusted in Jesus. We love you, Lord Jesus. As we look to your table, we give you the praise. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.